Welcome to REI Spotlight with your host, David Schwann, and today's guest is Rob Beardsley with Lone Star Capital Group. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for being on. Uh, Rob, give us a little bit of your background of how you got into real estate. Yeah, so I got into real estate pretty early on. I come from a real estate family, so I grew up in the business. Uh, my dad likes to tell me that I was in diapers on construction sites, so uh, it's kind started, of in my DNA. Started started you out young. Well, that's a I, it, it, it's not a bad it's not a bad field to start out in. That's right. That's right. Uh, so born into the family, how did you uh, how did you progress from from there? What have you what have you done? Yeah, so we, you know, my my parents had done nothing in multifamily, uh, and so I started researching multifamily and and really just trying to look at real estate from a different perspective. They saw real estate as a job. They were selling residential real estate, building residential real estate. Um, you know, doing things that aren't necessarily creating generational wealth and um, really able to scale and grow a portfolio. And so that was the part of real estate that I found really intriguing. Um, aside from the, yeah, the, the deal structuring, the creativity involved in all that. So that's what really attracted me to it. And I was dragging my parents into it and saying, hey, this is something we need to open our eyes to. We need to see that this is a vehicle for, for long lasting or, you know, wealth creation. And uh, so that was, you know, you know, back back in college, that was my first introduction to multifamily, and really gravitated towards that, and saw that as as really the uh, most straightforward private equity business. Definitely, that's. Uh, I mean, it's it's amazing how many guests I I talk to, and how many people I come across that you know they've started on that single family. It's kind of the same thing, you know. It's it's like you you know they they get started in a single family and then, you know, and, and same things, you know, like, you know, people that have done it for 10 and 15, 20 years, or, you know, they've built a, a decent living off of it as their main business, kind of like your parents. And then it's like, well, I've never even really taken the time to view this sector of real estate, you know, because I think a lot of them, they kind of, because they're, they're in a single family side and, you know, at times there's so much of a grind. It's like, look, they were just, sitting there, you know, they're putting one foot in front of the other, just kind of doing what they do. And then they stop and they see multifamily and it's like, you know, guys like Joe Fairless and, and, you know, stuff like that, you know, these guys are like, well, yeah, I had single family stuff and every single one of them, it seems like once they get into the multifamily space, they just kind of start shifting out of it and going, now nah, I want to be in this, uh, in this multifamily space, which I think is why it's uh, such a hot commodity right now. Very true. And yeah, that, that single family transition to multifamily is a, people have discussed that over and over and I'm definitely not an expert as far as the, the transition or the differences, but you know, just to, to highlight those would be uh, diversifying your risk, right? Rather than a single income source from one tenant in a single family home, you know, you might have 200 apartments. So that's a much more diversified income source. And then you can also, with a larger asset, afford to have full-time staff on site, oversight from a regional manager, you know, full professional management. Um, and then also you have a, a lender who is your biggest investor in the deal, putting up the most capital and they're a very sophisticated entity and they are going to, you know, order their required uh, third party reports, fully underwrite the deal and, and really, you know, stress test it. So you have to feel good if a lender is even backing on a deal just to get started. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's kind of the they they pay way more attention to a you know one, two, four, five million dollar, ten million dollar deal. They pay they scrutinize that and put a lot more effort into backing you up and making sure that your numbers are right and what your decision is than they do on a you know hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. It's just it's it's just economies of scale again of like look even even your lender has your best, you know, your best interest at heart. Even you know, on multifamily, it's it's a huge team, and it's like each team member has that drive for you of like, look, we want to make sure that this is stress tested and that you're you're going to do good. That you know, so you have that those extra layers of that underwriting is is pretty cool in in multifamily space. I find absolutely. Um, on stress testing, uh, uh, I've read a couple of your articles and stuff. What's some of the ways that you guys have gotten creative on stress testing and underwriting your deals to make sure that there's something that you want to get into? Yeah, so I think the most interesting stress test would be an exit test. And this is performed by lenders, like we discussed, on uh they, they look at when they're putting on a loan, whether it be a three-year loan, a five-year loan, a 10-year loan, they want to see that at the end of the loan's term, if they stress uh, the asset's performance, market conditions, is there still enough value there and income to uh, refinance the loan and still cover, uh, cover the existing loan? Because the worst situation for everyone is where you put on a, a certain a loan with a certain amount of leverage and when the loan comes due, you don't have enough equity built into the deal uh, to take that existing loan out. And then, you know, people would call that it's a hung loan or you know, their bridge loan gets hung. That's most commonly. So this type of loan maturity risk is uh, most commonly seen in bridge loans, which, uh, you know, bridge loans uh, sometimes get a bad rap. People say, oh, I'll, I won't invest in a deal with a bridge loan, which is definitely a fair way uh, to tailor your investment preference if you like longer term steady cash flows and take less risk. But deals just by the nature of them that have the most upside and can produce the most outsized returns must be bought with a bridge loan because uh, you know permanent uh, financing is not available for deals with less than 90% occupancy and things like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And, and, the, and the bridge loan, it's like, like you said, you know, I mean, you know, if you're buying a property and you want a high return on your money, it's going to have risk. And those risks are going to take a product that, you know, Freddie and Fannie are not interested in something that's 70% occupied and needs a, a heavy lift. But if you're getting, if you're digging into a heavy lift project, you need financing, you have to get it somewhere. A bridge loan's what fits that, but that's how you start seeing a much more dramatic return on your investment is by taking, you know, it's, it's a risk reward situation. And, and, you know, of course you're going to pay more for a bridge loan and, you know, you're those, those things, but that's part of doing in that aspect of a heavy lift and a heavy value add is you, you know, those uh, bridge loans are a necessity to be able to take advantage of those situations. Exactly. And, we take the perspective, we're not binary. We don't say, oh, well, we won't do any bridge loans and or, or we only do bridge loans. We look at it as if we're going to do a project that necessitates a bridge loan, is there enough value to be created that actually substantiates the risk of the bridge loan? Because you know, I'm seeing some groups 
uh, and this has been happening for a while as deals have gotten tighter and slimmer, uh, they're buying deals that could be financed by Fannie and Freddie, um, but instead they're pursuing a bridge loan for that extra leverage and and to try to to project a higher return via via the leverage. And that that is a scary situation. Um, so for us, you know, when we see a deal that is stabilized and 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 fits in the agency box, you know, we want to go agency. But if it has the upside, where going back to the exit test on on the stress testing. If we can show that there's enough upside where we raise the NOI, raise the value of the property, there's a big delta between the going in bridge loan amount. Let's say it's a $10 million bridge loan as we go into the deal, but we're going to create enough value that a stabilized loan from Fannie Freddie two years or three years later is going to be a $13 million loan. That's a $3 million difference between the going in loan and our projected takeout. So let's say we don't hit our numbers or cap rates are wider at that time, there's still enough wiggle room that, okay, maybe we exit at an $11 million takeout loan. That's still a nice question. And then worst case scenario, I mean, obviously things can be worse, but worst case scenario would be you get a $10 million takeout loan and that would be a cash neutral refinance, but at least you're able to get out of the bridge loan, put yourself in a stable situation and then, you know, take out loan maturity risk. Yeah. 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 And, and then that just, kind of you, you know you're you're get making yourself uh prepared for a wor- worst case scenario it's like yes i i'm i'm aiming you know in this situation i'm aiming for 13 but you know if we you know if we miss it by you know 15 percent, we still have you know it's like look if we miss it by 15 almost 20 percent, we still can hit our number where we have to be you know it's like you know so it's and like you said, you know, there's there's definitely people out there that, when you know, when they're underwriting it, they're they're writing it so thin to be able to hit, you know, to be able to put on paper certain numbers. And in reality, you know, if anything, you know, those projects, if any, if a hiccup happens, they're not sitting in a good position. And you know, that's uh, that's why I like the way that you said that you're stress testing it is because you know that's you know, I, for my passive investing listeners out there, make sure that you're, you know, that when you're looking at a project that you're stress testing it and that the sponsor has stress tested it so that, you know, you can ask those questions of, look, um, you know, everybody should know now, you know, we're kind of at the top of the market where at least we perceive to be the top of the market. We don't know how much farther it's going to go, but, uh, you know, it's all cyclical. So at some point it's going to come down a little bit, you know, who knows how much, how far. Um, but, you know, you have to build that in to be able to go, all right, well, if there is a risk, I, you know, I have to make sure that it's built in and prepared. And some people want to go, well, you're just a doomsdayer. And it's like, well, no, I'm a realistic person because it's got, you know, at some point in time, it'll happen, whether it's big or whether it's small, you know, it always happens. So it's just building in that extra stress test to make sure that you can get, uh, you can get where you need to be. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, you know, like you said, we're at the top of the cycle. And for some people, it makes a lot of sense given their risk preference that they just want to, they understand prices are high, but they need to invest. You know, we constantly need to be investing capital as, as investors and, you know, they'll accept a lower return by investing in a stabilized deal and paying a premium for it. But at least they're locked in to 10 year cash flows and, and have very little risk in a recession, in my opinion, if you're yeah. buying in a good area 
and you know you're not over leveraged which fannie and freddie this cycle and and pretty much all lenders have done a really good job of not over levering the real estate uh, market and that's really what takes down these uh big recessions is lenders uh you know the people say uh, if you if a recession happens you know look and you'll see a lender um and so this i think has been a, a unique uh, cycle in which lenders have really constrained to uh, to certain debt service coverage ratio requirements, leverage LTV requirements. Um, but even then, with ten year money, ten year debt, you should be able to ride it out. And then, you know, on the bridge loan side, there's still those opportunities out there to find outsized value. Definitely, and and you had said part of it was is you know a a good property and a stable market what's uh what are some of your criteria to pick a good market what how do you how do you define a good market for you guys so a, a good market for us pretty much how everybody else defines it we're looking for a nice stable diversified job base and typically what people say is uh, no industry makes up more than 20% of the area's jobs uh, you know, we like to see population growth. So something we're always looking at, uh, and we get down to the census track. So that could be just, you know, even less than a one mile radius. And we're looking at that specific area and seeing what was the uh, year 2000 census population, and then 2010, and then 2016. Um, and obviously, we're looking for an upward trend at minimum, but ideally, you're seeing uh, 20% uh, change from 2000 to 2016. Uh, that definitely gets us comfortable. And we really do see that as, a, you know, that's a, a nice way to quickly check. And usually if that checks out, most of the other boxes check out in terms of uh, rents have been growing well and uh, properties have been appreciating and, and other investors have been going and buying value add there. Yeah. You, you, usually if people are moving in, there's usually a reason. And, and that's a, um, you know, my, migration patterns can can prove or show a lot, you know, if, if there's an influx and people are wanting to be there, well, most likely if they're wanting to be there now, even in a downturn, people still want to be there. Maybe they, they may or may not be able to afford to get there, but it's still a desired location. And if you're in a desired location, that makes it easier, even in tough times, because, you know, face it, if you have a great location, if you have a product in a location that people want to live in, just because the economy's gone bad doesn't mean that people still don't want to move in there and live in, in, in your area and your property. So, you know, even if it's, you know, if you have that, that spot where people just want to be, even in downtimes, people still want to be there. And so as long as you have that, that desirable location and a desirable product, you know, even in a recessionary time, you should still factor out, you know, should still do pretty well overall because you still have something that's in, in demand, even even if uh, not may, maybe not as many people can qualify to be in your property, you still have that demand and you still have that want, which that can overcome a lot. Yeah. And that brings me to the next point, which would be looking at uh, median household income. And, you know, first, the number is important, uh, just, you know, higher the better but also looking at the distribution of incomes in the area. So for example, if the median might be 40,000, but if you read in deeper into the numbers and you might see that the distribution actually skews heavily towards um, you know, 20,000 uh, household income. So t- going that next layer and looking at the distribution of incomes is important. And then also 
you know, we're typically looking at deals where we can raise rents potentially 10 to 20%. We want to see that those pro forma rents that we're, we're projecting to are still hitting the affordability box in, uh, based on the current household income in the area. Yeah, not not going well. Okay, this should be a great income. Or, you know, this should be a great area. We just need to attract people who make you know fifteen thousand dollars a year more than the, the current tenants. And it's like, no, you can't play that game. And I've seen I've seen some I've seen some stuff that you know some performers that have been wrote up that where the numbers. It's like, no, these people can't afford it. And I've even had a operator go. Yeah, but once we're done, these tenants aren't going to be the tenants that are going to live there anyway. And it's like, you may be right, and that could be 100% accurate, but especially with the, where we're at, in the, again, where we're at in the market, do you really want to roll the dice on, you know, on that being a definite, you know, versus historical of, you know, okay, we can get these rents, this income for this neighborhood can still support our new rents. So we should still be good. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, for a reposition play where you're really going to be retenanting the asset. So essentially there's a current class of tenant, we'll call them, you know, a, a class C tenant base. And you feel that the market has evolved there to now that there's enough uh, class B type tenants, you know, you might actually go in with a business plan to retenant the property with these different class of tenants that make that higher income. And then going back to the distribution, you want to see that there actually is a, a deep enough group of demand there at that higher income, right? So 40,000, maybe the median, but is there a nice 20% of the distribution making 65, 75, you know, whatever that number is, if you're going to pursue that type of renovation scope. Yeah, definitely. You want to make sure that, you know, it, that the neighborhood can support what your your plans are because, you know, uh, let's face it, there are some neighborhoods around here where you can still get some really, really inexpensive properties, but you're not, they're, they're D-class properties. And, you know, even if you went in and changed it to an A-class product, you're still not in an A-class neighborhood and you're not going to attract a-class tenants, no matter what you put in there, you know, um, unless you get lucky and you're just a savant, <laughs> you know, it's it's like, look, you know, going, going it deep into the hood and putting in an A-class product, unless you know something that nobody else knows, that's not a good idea. Right, right. Unless you have some inside information with Amazon or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and I think the the idea that it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to invest in class A areas only or primary markets only or really strong growth markets. You know, there's plenty of great deals out there that exist in slow growth markets instead of have declining population um, and B class areas and C class areas. You can buy deals everywhere. You just have to know what you're buying. And like you said earlier, project accordingly. You're not, if you're buying in a C class area, don't project that you're going to get B or A class rents. And uh, we actually take somewhat of a contrarian view because we do look at markets that, you know, maybe aren't as uh, sought after by investors and, you know, we still want to bid in those markets and still be competitive, but we adjust our underwriting accordingly rather than projecting and rent growth. We'll come in and project two, and that'll just be our own way to discount the fact that the market may not be as, as strong as, as another market, but at least we can, you know, if I can still get 
just put some numbers to it. If in a primary market that's that has good growth and I can safely project 3% rent growth, if I'm getting a 15% IRR based on those assumptions, that's a good deal. Or I could go to a smaller secondary tertiary market rather than project 3%, project 2% rent growth and project a 17% IRR. That also to us is very interesting. We think that presents a risk adjusted return. Definitely, definitely. And like you said, that risk adjusted return is like, look, you know, um, unless you're in a area where, you know, uh, populations taking a, you know, is on a nosedive and, you know, everybody's just running out of town, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, might want to stay away from that. But like you said, if it's a slow growth area, if it's just steady, you know, even, even if, you know, like you said, maybe, uh, you know, even if it's slightly declining, but you know that it's, it's those current levels, it may not grow much, but you know, the, the industries that are there aren't going anywhere. It's going to chug along, you know, it's like, look, it's not going to grow much. It's not really, you know, it's not going to skyrocket, but it's stable and it's been chugging along at this for a long time. And the industries and the, and the, people there, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to skyrocket, but it's not going to nosedive either. And it's like, look, you know, if the, you know, like you said, the adjusted returns make sense. Why not be in a market like that? It doesn't have to be in those skyrocketing. Not everything has to be in those skyrocketing hot markets. You can be in a little bit cooler market as long as you, as long as the rest of the numbers and the rest of your, your, your basics meet what you need it to be. And, you know, it, that's still a good investment as long as you know up front and you understand what those demographics are. Yeah. And like we talked about earlier about being at the top of the market, a lot of investors are concerned about the, the prospects of future growth. And in my opinion, I, I feel a lot safer buying a deal where I'm achieving a certain return predicated upon a lower growth assumption rather than being in the hottest market and and winning the deal predicated upon 3 4% rent growth knowing that we're potentially heading into a slowdown period where i was banking on 4 and i might actually have 0 for a year or two you know that's going to greatly affect that growth strategy but like you said the slower cooler market that's just chugging along if you're only projecting 2% and you get 0 it's not going to hurt your numbers as much yeah and and, and that's kind of you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, it's, it's like, look, I, I stress test it to, you know, especially right now, me personally, it's like, look, I, I've started, you, you know, I, I do what I think the market's going to do, but at the end of the day, I still roll back around and go, well, okay, how far down can I go before this is, is busted? You know, how, you, you know, can I go two years with no rent growth whatsoever? You know, can I go a year with, you know, maybe losing, one percent of rent or two percent of rent just to stay competitive in the market, and you know those are those are not everybody wants to look at those numbers. And it's like, look, no, these this is not what I'm um, shooting for. But I need to know that you know this is a possibility. Um, and you know, can can I take these? You know, if we take these body hits, can we can we survive a body hit like this? And you know, it's just putting those numbers down and going, okay, yeah, it, you know, we can survive this hit if it happens to take us there. 
And, you know, and that's, that's just a, a kind of a key point that I've been kind of really looking at is making sure that, like you said, you know, it's like, look, just because it's been four or 5% for the last three or four years, doesn't lock in that it's going to be at four and 5% the next two, three, four, five years, you know, it, it's, you know, we want it to be, but just because of what we want, doesn't mean that's going to be reality. Yeah, exactly right. Um, but yeah, just the, you know, I, I guess the big point is, is just to make sure that we're stress testing our deals and make sure that we're understanding that the, the markets. And like you said, you know, if you're in that tertiary market, you can't go in thinking with the data that is in a primary market, you know, because that's not going to work out in your favor, you know, because most of the time the tertiary markets are not growing at the same degree or same percentages as the primaries are. And that's exactly. just a, that's just part of the game of playing in a tertiary market. Right, right. And so I think something that's been happening for the last while is as the primary markets have become more and more competitive and uh, cap rates have gone down in those markets, investors are now starting to push out and, and, and reach for yield in the secondary and tertiary markets. And a lot of investors that typically aren't in those markets are now playing in those markets and they're mistakenly underwriting those markets the same as they potentially would, like you said, in a primary. And uh, in my opinion, like we mentioned earlier, you should roll back your assumptions, be more conservative in those tertiary markets. And on top of that, demand a higher return. So if you were previously getting a, or, you know, if you comfortably get a 13 or a 15 in a primary, well, then you should be getting a, you know, 16, 17 in a tertiary. Um, so, and then just recapping on the stress test, we mentioned the, the exit test, you know, being able to get out of your loan, which is a lot more realistic um, and, and pretty much very easy to do on a 10-year loan because 10 years yes. out, like, you know, everyone would pretty much say America will be in a better place 10 years from now. There'll be more growth, more income. Uh, and so, and also you'd have had time uh, to pay down your debt via amortization. So that exit test is far more important for bridge loans. But then for the stabilized long-term loans, like you mentioned, stressing, uh, you know, bringing down the maybe negative rent growth, bringing down occupancy and seeing, can I still break even on the loan? And that's the key, right? Being able to keep paying the debt even in hard times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and to me, you know, it's like, look, um, you know, I guess, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a realist or just, you know, it's like, look, I want to make sure that, you know, my investors are covered and, and that they... You know, to to me, it's like look, uh, you know, we for, forecast a return on it, but my biggest thing is is to make sure that your capital doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's like look, I've the return of original capital is of course my first and foremost responsibility. You know, being able to profit and return after that, you know, that's the goal and that's what we all shoot for. But to me, the still the the ultimate golden goose part of it is is don't lose the capital. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's the most important part of it for everybody is don't lose the capital. That's why I, th I think, you know, having that stress test of, you know, how far can we push it? How far, you know, and looking at the historicals of, look, we've been through recessions before. What did this market do the last time there was a recession? What type of occupancy did we have? What type of, you know, what, what type of rent growth or, you know, what happened to rents the last time around that there was a recession, you know, because a lot of that stuff, it's like, no, it's not going to be identical, but you still have a, a feel for what the flavor is going to be 
if it happens. And then you kind of look at that historical stuff and kind of match it up to what you're doing now. And when you do that, then you kind of get a little bit, you, you know, it, it kind of builds you up a little bit and goes, okay, well, you know, at this number, you know, we can go down to, you know, if we go down to 70% occupancy or, you know, 70%, you know, mon- monetary occupancy, you know, we, we can make that work. We can survive with that, um, you know, versus like, uh, no, we have to be at 88%, um, you know, occupancy or we're, you, you know, we're, we're not going to make it, you know, if you're at that point, you know, just, you know, you, you can't, you can't go off of those assumptions that you're going to have that high occupancy, even if it's been at 95, 96% the whole time that you've owned it or the previous owners owned it, you know, whatever paperwork you have, you know, you can't guarantee those. So you have to make sure that you're, you're, you're putting some hair on the dog to make sure that it can still float. (laughs) Um, We've uh, we, we've definitely covered some stress testing and stuff. Um, what's uh, what's some of the ways that you like to give back to your community, Rob? Give back to my community. Uh, what a good question. Um, that's a tough one. I'm not necessarily uh, in that stage of my life where I'm doing a lot of that, but I would say I, I love to teach, and so uh, you know when there is an opportunity to give back and and you know, someone asks me a question or wants me to provide them resources. I'm usually really open with that. And I grew up teaching whether I would, you know, I taught piano when I was younger and uh, I was a math tutor. And so I just, I like to give back and, and do things like that. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing thing. I mean, that's, that, that's an amazing gift to give back to those who are wanting knowledge and to be able to take the time and share your knowledge with somebody else. I, I think that is a highly noble cause to, to, to reach back. So don't, don't, don't take it. So, uh, you know, so nonchalantly of no, well, I, I teach people. I, I think teaching somebody and educating somebody on, on something that you do. And especially in our field where it's like, if you educate somebody and they take a hold of it, it could change their life. Even little be, you know, even little pieces of information, you know, it's like, look, the information that you've shared on this podcast, somebody could take that information and run with that down the road and that may change their life. So, you know, just it's, it's teaching, but it's not just teaching, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're helping educate somebody and, you know, move them down the road, um, which I'm a very, very huge fan of. So, um, you know, that, but which is part of the reason why I do the podcast is, is the educational part. So I definitely appreciate you, uh, you, you know, helping others out and helping people grow their business. Um, What's a good way for my listeners if they want to get a hold of you, Rob? What's a what, what's a good way for them to, to get a hold of you? So you can find out more about us at LoneStarCapGroup.com. And you can email me directly at Rob at LoneStarCapGroup.com. Um, I'm happy to share uh, my underwriting model, which I built myself. People often ask me for that and find that to be a very helpful resource. And um, yeah, anything else, I'm, I'm happy to you know, jump on a call. Awesome. Awesome, man. I'll definitely, uh, we'll put the, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes and, um, you know, hopefully my listeners reach out to you and, and they can, um, you know, you, you can help them and hopefully they can help you, uh, you guys move to your next level and, and grow to that next level that you're trying to get to. Well, Rob, I appreciate you, uh, coming on the show and sharing your knowledge and, um, 
just thank you so much for being on. And until next time, thank you. Thanks for having me.